0: So we went to this arboretum. It was called the Polly Hill Arboretum. And as we're in the entrance place looking at all the displays, it said Polly Hill started this arboretum when she was 50. I thought, huh. And then we went out walking through the arboretum. And there goes Polly Hill on our scooter at 96.
1: Welcome to Choosing to Farm, a podcast for first and returning generation livestock farmers and ranchers. To share their stories, find connection, and provide insight into the life of farmers who didn't take the traditional path, I'm your host, Jen Colby. This is Jen. Thanks for joining us today. There's still time to register for the Gathering of Good Grazers coming to Western Massachusetts uh, January 25th or 27th. The event is going to highlight forage and silver pasture research. It has a whole day dedicated to nutrition and sensory evaluation and research priorities. And it includes a lightning round of farmers doing interesting things across the region on Saturday. It's got a little bit of everything. The keynote on Saturday is Mark Schatzker, who is the author of Steak, the Dorito Effect, and his new book is The End of Craving. It's a hybrid conference, so there's the option to come in person or attend online if you are late to hearing about this, or you just can't get away from the farm. So agenda details and registration links are right in the show notes. There are a lot more details than what I'm just sharing here. So I do hope you check it out. And just as importantly, I hope you decide to join us. On today's episode, I'm joined by Ridge Shin, known nationally as a grass-fed beef booster, an enthusiast, a rare breeds advocate, and now an author. He's a first-generation farmer too. Ridge has a lot of ground to cover today, so let's jump right in.
0: Probably I should just jump in and start talking about my trail. thinking about the question choosing to farm is an interesting uh, question. So for me, as a kid, I lived in suburbia. My dad was a college professor, very non practical. But my grandfather, who lived in California, was he called himself a rancher. He had lemons, he had 20 acres of lemons. But because he lived in California, I lived in Rhode Island. I only spent a few weeks of my life with him. But in those few weeks, he tried to teach me everything he knew. <laughs> but <clears throat> so time went on, I went to college, and I went to college actually in the, graduated 1970, so a long time ago, and I was very involved in things at that time. I studied political science and environmental education, so at that age, when I graduated, I had all the answers at that time, And I decided I would go to Washington, D.C. and just tell them some of these truths and things would change. So I secured a job at an environmental group called the Population Institute in Washington, D.C. Our office was like, you look out the front window and you'd see the Capitol, look out the side window in the Supreme Court building. So our office was right there. And it was a very heady time in the 70s. Environmental action, zero population growth, all those things were happening. And so as much as I'd studied political science, I had a very rude awakening to see how it actually worked. <laughs> and I, so my job was organizing environmental groups around the country. So confederations of environmental groups in Michigan and Kansas and all over. But we also were very involved in trying to push legislation. And it was just a supreme frustration once we really understand how the sausage is made and how the government works and who owes who what. And so after two years, I was burned. I was like, and and our focus had been population, too much population, reproductive biology, things like that. But at that point, I realized that it wasn't sheer numbers. It was resources and how we used resources and particularly how we used resources in agriculture. So at that point, I decided I really want to learn how to farm. So I started casting around. I thought, well, how could I do that? And as a kid, <clears throat> my parents used to take us up to Old Sturberd Village, Living History Museum. So I called them up. I said, any chance I could get a job? They said, you're hired, get up here. So <laughs> that's how it happened. After a week or two, I said, how much money am I making? They're like, oh, 350 an hour or something like that. <laughs>
1: That's better than minimum wage at that time, as I recall.
0: But it was a very yeasty place to learn because the guy we worked for, Darwin Kelsey, was the one that came up with the idea of living history. He's the one that kind of pioneered living history. So all us young folks that were working at the village, smart, capable, interested people, were the ones that kind of implemented living history. So we'd go to the curatorial building and look at the tools and replicate the wooden plow with metal on it. We had oxen. We learned how to mow the hay with a scythe. We tried to replicate the farmer's year. So it was a very interesting way to learn the history of agriculture. At the same time, I was living with a group of friends that all worked at Old Service Village. And we were in an apartment. The apartment got sold out from under us. And we ended up on a farm together it was at the time a fairly modern farm in that it had we're milking 115 head of cattle we had a free soil barn five on a side herringbone this was like 1972 or something like that so it was an interesting juxtaposition so I'd milk the cows in the morning in the milking parlor Didn't go down to Old Sherwood's Village on the three-legged stool, melt the cow. (laughs) But it was a very interesting juxtaposition to learn. And so that went on and I worked at the village and eventually I became, I was in charge of all the woodworking and all the mills and all the agricultural programs, started the timber framing program at Old Sherwood's Village. And then a friend said, well, how would you like to work full-time? Doing timber frame. I said, that's not possible. He said, sure it is. Here's a job. So I took a job building timber frames. And for and then I got tired of that situation, started my own company. So for 35 years, I built timber frame houses and barns and all over New England, all over the country. And but always in the back of my mind I had this, you want a farm. I thought, well, geez, I'll make a lot of money, then I can farm. But
1: <laughs> <Isn't that laughs> actually, what you I think had, sometimes, yeah. <laughs>
0: right, right, I had this watershed moment because I was thinking more and more. Like, uh, so when I my hit my fiftieth birthday, I was like, oh, I've got to. If I'm ever going to do it, I got to get going. And it was interesting because I was on a I was on Martha's Vineyard with my men's group, and for some reason it was rainy. We couldn't go to the beach, so we went to this arboretum. It was called the Polly Hill Arboretum. And as we we're in the, the, the entrance place, looking at all the displays, it said Polly Hill started this arboretum when she was 50. And I thought, huh. And then we went out walking through the arboretum, and there goes Polly Hill on our scooter at 96. <laughs> <laughs> but here's this arboretum with its fully grown trees and arches. I mean, it was incredible. I'm like, 50 is not too old. Get going. You're going to get going. Get going. So I came back home. Yeah, it was a real spurt. And I, so I came home. And one of the things I did at Old Service Village, we got involved in heritage breeds. And actually, we kind of revived the milking Devon breed. It was down to 10 bulls and about 50 cows. And I had an intern that worked for me, Tina Bielenberg from Hampshire College, and we decided to go find all the Devons in New England. So we did this odyssey of going to Tribeweek Fair and the Ox Teamsters would be there, all these old guys. We were these young, kind of hippie-ish looking people, and they're like, what do you want? Then finally, (laughs) we understand we were interested. They would talk to us. So we found like a Nancy Drew mystery. We found all these Devons, and we finally, in 1978, set everybody down in Tunbridge and formed the American Milking Devon Association. And at that point, Tina and I looked at each other and thought, well, this needs to be done for all the breeds. So in 1978, we started the American Minor Breeds Conservancy, which is today the Livestock Breeds Conservancy. Oh,
1: wow. I didn't realize you started that. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I'm a emeritus, have a seat on the board, but I haven't been involved for a long time but we did we went and found all these rare breeds we organized people and anyway that was previous kind of to my timber framing experience so i had some background in breeds and everything and so i knew this nun down in connecticut that had tamworth pigs so i went and bought some gilts and i was at a home show in north carolina and i brought a boar so i brought the boar home and all of a sudden i had all these pigs <laughs> and I came slam up against that ye old marketing question how am I going to get rid of these pigs <laughs> so it was interesting so I had this friend who he said look i run a little route down to the New York area selling meat he he was uh, at beef you can just get your pigs killed and we'll put them on my truck and it'll be hunky-dory and I said great so I harvested my 10 piglets and more pigs by that time. And he said, Rich, the only problem is once you start, you can't stop. And I said, but I only have 10 pigs. It'll be a year before I have another 10 pigs. So then I had to brainstorm that I could organize farmers to collaborate. So in, the, in 2001, I started a not-for-profit called the New England Livestock Alliance, NELA. I had a wealthy friend that kind of fronted us and began organizing farmers. And we were going to do everything Chick, chickens, pigs, sheep, cattle. <clears throat> and I had these rare breeds. I had all the rare breeds. I had Gloucester Old Spots and I had Tamworth pigs and I had large black pigs. And I was raising them outside. We were organic certified. And <clears throat> so actually, the NOFA organic grain co-op would would meet here at my timber frame shop because we oh. had forklifts to unload the trucks and everything. But eventually it dawned on me that <clears throat> pigs was really a material handling business. I mean, I absolutely loved the pigs, but being a monogastric, they have to have something more to eat than grass <laughs> and roots. I do day-old bread with organic bread. I tried everything. But it was just so expensive. But as we got going on this New England livestock land, I started reading some of Joe Robinson's work and realized that the grass-fed beef thing was been figured out, but nobody was really doing it at the time. So I went to one of my producers and said, let's get some steers. Let's raise them up. Let's slaughter them and then taste them and see what's what. And of course, it was all over the place. Some was terrible, <clears throat> some was tender, and I was like, oh, man, I don't have enough time to figure this out. <laughs> <laughs> but I actually, I hired a couple of consultants. They, they called themselves the Jacob Alliance, but it was Gerald Fry and Alan Williams <clears throat> came to work for me at that time. And Gerald, in particular, <clears throat> became my partner, but we started going around and evaluating cattle with the ultrasound machine. So we could actually look into the animal, the live animal, see intramuscular fat tenderness. And we also had this, these tools, linear measurement tools that we could actually physically measure the animals and began to find almost in any group of cattle, the right kind of cattle Mm. that would make a delicious piece of meat, but it was a tremendous mix it was like this melting pot everybody had been crossbreeding this that and the other thing and you could never tell from the stew pot what was good and what was bad without some kind of sorting mechanism right, but right. We, real- we realized at that time that it was genetics getting the right cattle the right first the right breeds with the uh british breeds mm-hmm. for quality and then the subset of the breed that would be functional grass. And interestingly, it led us right back to the Devon, but the beef Devon instead of the milking devin, because we would go, we go into a group and we, and we did this all over the country. So we would go into a group of black Angus cattle and 15, 20% of them would not prove to be a good eating experience by our estimation because the black Angus covers everything. You can breed a black Angus, the whole thing is gonna be black, cold, it's gonna look. But it has different genetics. (laughs) Whereas with the Devon, every single one we found was, rang the bell. They were great, but there were very few of them. At the time, this was like 2003, there was only a hundred and I think 20 registered Beef Devon's in the country, really, the breed, really. The beef had the breed had really died out, mainly because it didn't fit the market criteria. The biggest breeder of cattle in Devon's in the U.S. was now Jerry Jeremy Ing, or actually his father Jerry, Ng, and he had been breeding for years to try and make the animals taller and more like the traditional animals because he would get beat up in the marketplace. You'd take these moderately sized fat roly-poly cows and he'd get discounted because Mm -hmm. the feedlot did not want them. So that was fascinating. But we did find some of the right type. We actually bought some cattle from Jeremy. Gerald and I were there one day and he was just walking the herd past us and we were just looking at the cattle. Just visual appraisal yeah. But they were just so we picked out three cows, and uh, I said to Jer- Jeremy, "I said, so can we buy those cows?" And he said, "Well, everything on the place has a price," and he gave us a price at the time, which was like eighteen hundred dollars, which was astronomical. And I said, "Fine, we want them." And I shook his hand and made a deal. <clears throat> so we went. We we're staying at their place, and in the morning he came back and he said, Rich, I can't sell you those cows. Those are my best cows. I said, I know they are. (laughs) But when we looked at the pedigrees, they were 13, 14, and 15 years old. They were the old ladies. Wow. From the 1960s. Wow. Yeah. So it was interesting. We had found a number of, of beef devon females, like 40 or 50, but we had no bulls, no good bulls. So I went down to Jeremy Ings, and I said, I'd like to buy a bull. So I went down to Virginia with my linear measuring tools, and there was a bull tied to the fence. I said, I want to measure him. He says, what are you talking about? I said, well, put him in the chute, and we'll physically measure him. So put him in the chute. He wasn't very good. I said, you got any other bulls? He said, yeah, I got another six or seven. So he goes out with the dogs and brings back the other bulls. We're measuring the bulls. This is taking a long time. And his father Jerry had been out doing some work and he came back to the barn and he's like he's anxious to get Jeremy back on the bush hog back to work instead of running away all this time he said what are you doing anyway I said well we're linear measuring I was showing what I was doing he said oh my god he said you come with me he said hop in the jeep here we're gonna go so he took me out in the pastures and he drove me up to some of these old ladies and it's like Oh my God. He knew he, when I showed him the linear measurement, he knew exactly what I was looking for. Right. So, anyway, at that time, we still didn't find any uh, bulls that we thought were the quality we we're looking for. So, and at the time, I'd done some seminars. Oh, well, meanwhile, Neela, the New England Lifecycle Alliance, had purchased a slaughterhouse in Connecticut at Stafford Enterprises. We knew nothing about running a slaughterhouse. it was really it was nuts But our benefactor Nancy Goldberg said sure you can buy a slaughterhouse and bought it and here we were we had a slaughterhouse and we developed a brand called pasture perfect and we were in the marketplace but we were we really you know didn't know what we were doing at that point but but we were looking for a bull and I'd run a seminar at the slaughterhouse I had a little bit of money so I said to Gerald, there's gotta be some bulls, Devon bulls elsewhere in the world. Well, of course there's some in England, but we couldn't import from England because of Mad Cow. Right. It, and actually the biggest collection of Devons in the world are in Brazil, but the same thing, we couldn't import because of foot and mouth. So oh. I said to Gerald, we gotta go somewhere where, the, where we could import. So we picked New Zealand and Australia. And I bought Gerald a ticket and said, okay, here's the places we'd identified. Go look. So he flew to New Zealand. And he called me up. He said, I found the best herd in the world.
1: Oh, wow.
0: And I said, well, you still got to go to Australia and look. <laughs> but anyway, he had found what everybody knows now is the rotokawa Devons. It's just the mm-hmm. name of a farm. But Ken McDowell the, was not the owner of the farm, but the farm manager was an incredible breeder. And interestingly, he had bred <coughs> his main line of work was breeding sheep. So it was funny because Gerald came back with pictures. And he and <coughs> Ken had about 100 cows, but he had 2,500 sheep. So I kept seeing these sheep in the back of the pictures. I said, Gerald, what about the sheep? He said, <laughs> He had sheep. I didn't see any sheep. He was just, <laughs> all he could see were the cattle. But what Ken had done, these 2,500 sheep, he'd made like three by five cards, and he'd noted the thickness of the wool, the the conformation, whether they had lambs, their the whole performance had, had selected this incredible set of sheep. But he'd done the same thing with wow. the cattle. Wow. With, with he was just an incredible breeder. So anyway, we bought some semen. We bought about 6,000 units of this one bull in particular, 688. And we sold that semen all around the U.S. and Canada. So that 688 had about 6,000 calves. So a number of years later, Ken McDowell, I said, Ken, why don't you come over and we'll go see some of the project? So we did. We went, we traveled through the Montana, Wyoming, and went to Canada. And This one ranch, in particular in Canada, had over 20,000 acres, and they had a couple thousand cows, and we went out in the pickup to look at the herd, and we started picking out the calves, the progeny of the 688, from a distance. We could see them, and then we get close enough to look at the ear tags, and so the prepotency of this bull, the density of its genetics to stamp its offspring and it was particularly notable on this ranch because this ranch had been following the fads for the last 15 to 20 years and they had a total heinz 57 mother cow or they had pins pinscower they had just a little bit everything in there mm-hmm. and still this bull was just stamping oh. calves so that was pretty notable yeah. <laughs> so <clears throat> after a while gerald and i are driving along we're thinking well we got the bull, but we don't have the females, that quality. I wonder if we get some females. So we called Ken. He said, sure, pick the herd. You can have however, however many you want. So this was, I can't remember the dates, but so <laughs> ways back. So we imported 12 heifers, bred heifers. We flew them into Stewart Air Force Base. That was quite a whole... Fandango.
1: I can't uh, even imagine what importing live animals from New Zealand would be
0: like. <laughs> yeah, we had to we were at, we switched them on a plane in California to another plane and got them to Stewart Air Force Base, quarantined them. But then <clears throat> we were gonna how do we pay for this insanity for starters? And then so we started <clears throat> instead of building a, a bull or a facility we placed these 12 heifers on four different farms, one in New York, one in Rhode Island, one up in New Hampshire, and one in Maine. And we told these producers that they take care of the cows. Gerald and I would show up once every month or so and harvest embryos. We'd sell embryos to other people and build herds around the country. So we, that's, we did that. Um, meantime, the whole staff and enterprises things dissolve for a number of reasons, which <laughs> I have time to go into. And, and they quit buying cattle from my good producers and, or not paying them enough. So, my producer in Maine, Roger Fortin, who's now deceased, he was just great former dairyman, just excellent producer. And he called me. I remember I was in the airport and he said, Rich, they're, they're screwing me. They're not paying me for my cattle. I said, Roger, I talked you into doing this, and I'm going to see it through. Because he had, I had put an ad in Country Folks or something, and Roger called me, and he said, "I'm interested in talking to you, but I got to get one thing straight." He said, "Are you an extension agent?" I said, "No." He said, "Okay, we can talk," because he had been part of the Wolf scenario where they were going to aggregate cattle, and then. I guess extension agents got involved and kept driving the price down. But anyway, oh, so, we, yeah. so at that point, I said to my partner, Chuck Lacey, I said, we got to start another meat business. He said, Rich, we just got through that. He said, we got to do it and we got to make money on every animal. I said, fine, we'll do that. So we started hard with beef.
1: That's we, where it started. Huh.
0: Yeah. yeah. And we started harvesting up in Maine. But anyway, there's so many stories I could tell, but Hardwick Beef went along and we're selling semen and embryos. And then about, I think it was about 2010, Ken McDowell called me and he said, Grid, she said, I'm gonna retire. And the the nephew of the person who owned the ranch, the Rotokawa uh, Estates, is going to sell the cattle and just raise sheep. They're going to just fire sale the herd. you want it? I said, of course I want it. Right. Right. (laughs) I I said, can you find a farm to hold the cattle until I can figure out how to import the herd? And he said, no, you just got to do it. So that was... So we did it. I was created the first privately owned USDA inspected importation center. There were the importation centers where they can bring a bull or two cows or something, but nowhere where you could bring 90 animals. I was going to ask
1: you, how many? 87?
0: 87 animals, right. Wow. So we flew them in on two 747s and landed them in LAX and built our quarantine center up in uh, Santa Margarita, up in the desert. So it was really a crazy thing to do. The, The cattle were loading on the plane from in New Zealand in the snow. And they arrived at my quarantine center in the desert, Santa Margarita, in July. Pregnant, oh ready pregnant,
1: to ready. Oh, my gosh.
0: Yeah, it was like, what do you do, Rich? <laughs> anyway, long story short, we made it through that. There's whole, all kinds of stories around that. And then we brought the herd back to New England. And it was interesting because, of course, I hired the best people I could to move the cattle. We moved them in two pots and we stopped in Oklahoma and put them on the ground, let them eat. Then we brought them to Ohio, put them on the ground, let them eat. So these truckers called me after Ohio pickup. and They said, Rich, what in the hell breed are these cattle anyway? I said, well, they're Devons. Why? What's Is there a problem? He said, no. He said, but. It's crazy. They just calmly walk onto the trucks, calmly
1: walk,
0: <laughs> and nothing like the Angus with sheep flying and all kinds of craziness. So there was the docility, which correlates to tenderness. There was the propensity to get fat. And so, anyway, at that point we started the North American Devon Association, and you know created lots and lots of Devons out there. So that was kind of the genesis of that. Ah, And then, but then, then I actually had to give up my position in hardwood beef in order to finance that whole importation. So I did that begrudgingly, but you know, this importation had happened. So we made that happen all along. My concept was that if I could aggregate enough animals from enough different farms of the same high consistent quality mm. we could have a program mm-hmm. then the people that funded the importation of herd got tired of the expense they weren't getting their return on investment or whatever they decided to fire sale the herd fortunately for me i found a guy in hardwick who had the wherewithal to buy the herd so the herd still resides here in hardwick i don't own it anymore yeah yeah but i can still drive along and look over the fence and see the bulls.
1: yeah yeah <laughs>
0: the cow but (laughs) so at that point i got the itch to get going again in aggregating and i started the company called big picture beef and that was the the genesis of that and we went into the marketplace and we were we had challenges on processing but but Most of the challenges on processing are, were that the plants just didn't, they weren't big enough. They didn't have the skills. Everybody thinks, well, processing is the bottleneck and small is beautiful. A small plant is the thing. My feeling is not so much. You really need to get to a larger plant, to get the economies, as they say, economies of scale, but it's a true story. Some of the some of the things we found in these smaller plants is they don't one thing they don't market the old because they can't there's too too little to do so it's
1: simply yeah too little a couple of hearts little. here and, and there is doesn't right. get, get and, you anything yeah
0: so yeah. the producer ends up paying to dump the offal in a dumpster Yep. and then the skill level these people that work in these plants are great self-trained and all this but the skill level is just not there. So we don't get the yields. When we were cutting steaks for a supermarket and we cutting 10 ounce steaks, and you could see where the, the butcher cut off a 12 ounce steak and then trimmed it off to get down to 10.
1: Right. And, all, and that you'd lose
0: is, it. Yeah. all that stuff is waste. And then the price. So so anyway, time went on and we were talking actively with a company called Performers Food Group, which is a fifty billion dollar distributor. They actually own Black River Produce now, Not as well. well as another other companies. But I was working with the the vice president of PFG and trying to get into institutions and all. And the what what happened was in this was like 2019, 2020 and Steve, the vice president, said to me one day, he says, Rich, you got to come down to New York and pitch my commission salespeople. They have this huge group of commission salespeople. And so I said, fine. Or maybe it was in New Jersey. Anyway, it was down there somewhere. And I got 25 brochures and I packed up, headed down there. Came into this hotel ballroom, and here's 300 commission salespeople. Wow sitting at these long tables. And I'm like, oh my, I guess I didn't bring enough brochures. <laughs> <But> anyway, <laughs> they gave me a bunch of the other vendors. We get like 10 minutes. They gave me 45 minutes because of Steve to, to pitch oh. yeah, Beef. Yeah. And all these commissioned sale people said, ah, we've heard about it, but man, you can't eat that stuff. But well, obviously I brought some meat. I had a chef in the other room cooking it up. All these salesmen go through and they are going, oh, my God, the story is fantastic. And the meat is great. So that was February 2020. And then our email inboxes started blowing up. Right. We sold Gillette Stadium. We sold Brown University. We sold UMass. We sold Cornell. We sold Dartmouth. We sold. Oh, <laughs> and, and we're sitting there going, oh, my God. And then in March 2020, it just stopped. Everybody went home and nothing (laughs) transpired. So anyway, that's the short story of big picture (laughs) peep. We just, that was quite a blow. But anyway, we keep moving along. But one of the interesting things in the relationship with Steve is that I said, Steve, I'm going to pull back the curtain. Discuss all our expenses with you. What's happening? We can't make any money doing this. And he said, well, of course you can't. You got to market the awful. You got to have good skill set and you got to be a little bit bigger. So he said, I'll call the car deal in YA losing PA and tell them about you guys. And they just laughed at him. I mean, he's got friends in the industry. And they said, are you kidding me? 15 head? We kill 1800 animals a day. We're not gonna screw around with fifteen head.
1: Totally. You
0: you gotta come with two hundred fifty a week, <clears throat> and I'm like ah, oh. but then I got my calculator out and I'm like okay, two hundred fifty head per week would be thirteen thousand a year, and yeah. if you divide that by cow calf farms with thirty or forty head on a cow calf farm, that's only four hundred cow calf farms, and if you have finishing farms that can finish five or six hundred, like Mark and Cesarea, Mark and Cheryl used to do. You only have to have 15 finishing farms, so it's not a crazy thing, particularly when you consider that in this region, the region we define is the same as the Northeast Pasture Consortium.
1: I am loving this conversation, but I wanted to take a quick break to thank our underwriter for this episode, the New England Grazing Network. The New England Grazing Network is funded by the Cedar Tree Foundation with the goal of gathering and growing more regenerative grazing farms across the six New England states to address the challenges and adapt to climate change. The New England Grazing Network partners offer education, technical assistance, events, regional coordination, and camaraderie for grazers to help you graze better. Visit NewEnglandGrazingNetwork.com to learn more about our work and meet the partners waiting to help you.
0: So, from West Virginia to Maine,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: in, in that region, there's over four hundred thousand beef calves going. not dairy, just beef.
1: Yeah.
0: And you know, when I called, it doesn't
1: uh, sound crazy anymore, does it? When you see the map of that. that, no, They're right no. here. They're, no. right
0: here. they're getting yeah, aggregated. They exist, yeah. And and I called Mike Baker, who used to be the beef guy at Cornell. I said, Mike, is there any data on on how many of these beef cattle leave the region? He said, Well, you can be assured I don't have the data, but the vast majority go to the feedlot. Yep, There's some small programs here and there that yep. do a thousand a year or something like that, but the vast majority just go west. They get aggregated by the cattle, by the cattle dealers. And so then I said, well, geez, let me check with my local cattle dealer." So I got this guy, Tommy Lamb. He's got like a 24-foot gooseneck. His business is going to get spent dairy cows and beef cattle and taking them to market. So I said to him, I said, Tommy, how many beef cattle did you handle last year? He said, well, oh, probably 10,000. I'm like, are you kidding me? No. <laughs> so, this is the infrastructure that <laughs> gathers these cows, <cattle, clears throat> puts them together in their twenty-four foot trailer, and takes them somewhere and puts them in pots, and they go out west, and get backgrounded, and go to the feedlot, yep. get sorted, yeah, sorted because of the. So it didn't seem like a lot. So <clears throat> that's still the rock that I'm pushing. <laughs> you know, it's just like this could be the. Uh, We've been pushing this rock a long time, but the pieces of the puzzle, we know the right genetics, we know the right type of cattle, yeah. we know how to fatten them on grass, which is something that took us a long time to learn. It you did, know, but was a feed lot there. Just, yeah, you got to feed them the energy, you got to feed them the top of the grass and make them move like the cattle. Yeah, But yep. now that all this stuff is coming out, and like I said, the uh, the research... Yeah. The peer-reviewed research has been done. Actually, I co-authored a book that's that grass-fed beef for the post-pandemic world. There's over 290 footnotes in it. So the, the, the science is done. Yeah. And But the challenge is going from understanding all these pieces to having the thing really take off. But now the understanding little by little dawns on us that carbon's a problem too much carbon in the air but the real problem is water and grazing cattle like the buffalo creates uh a healthy water system and it does. so that's mm-hmm. the actually on our the big picture beef website there's a little video of infiltration tests A like guy stand out of uh North Dakota, I think he just did an infiltration test on corn land, extensively grazed land, the way mm. they do it out west BLM land, land, just turn the cattle out all summer. They eat whatever they want, then you round them up and then adapt a the multi paddock raised methodology. And it yes. was it's stunning because the infiltration test on the corn land this is corn land that's been no till, seeded, and everything else. It's 30 minutes to infiltrate. The ground 30 minutes, and you wonder why the Mississippi floods. You have,
1: yeah, there's have, no place for that water to go, it can't go down. Like, yeah, yeah, and then it, they
0: six in the extensive grazed land, it's dramatically better, seven minutes to percolate. And then you go to the amp grazed land, and it's 10 seconds to percolate. So, if you want to fix the water cycle, that's why I tell I, my little uh, elevator speeches, I can cure the flooding of the Mississippi, I can cure the drought in the West, and I can cure human obesity. You just have to give me the three states of Illinois, Iowa, and Indiana, and a big herd of cattle. (laughs) I'll get that job done.
1: We can do all those things.
0: Nobody's taken me up on it yet. But I mean, it's just uh, when you learn enough, it's just so obvious that the... I mean, that is, there's a bunch of stories in the book, but one of them is driving out through the Midwest, driving from Pennsylvania to, through Illinois. And it was before the corn had been planted. And as I'm driving, I think something's really weird. The median strip is all green and they're out there mowing it. And over the fence where the corn land is, there's no weeds. I mean, I drove all day and didn't see any weeds. <laughs> If you no, go to New York City, the weeds, weeds yeah. come up through the macadam. <laughs> yes, they do. This is our breadbasket, and the weeds won't grow. I mean, we have just—it's such a. Anyway, it makes me crazy. Obviously, <laughs>
1: well, clearly anyway, you're a, a driven <laughs> person. I mean, this is a thing that that I've known about you for some time. Oh, I didn't know half of the stuff that that of your background i've just known the parts of you since i've known you since we first met and in fact i got tamworth pigs because of a presentation you did at the grazing conference (laughs) and i raised tamworth pigs for 20 years so um thank you for that Yeah, Um, yeah But it just clearly, what I didn't realize is that from the very, very beginning, you've always been trying to work on solutions to some really big problems. So, and you just keep seeing new problems. I mean, not, not that you're seeing new problems, but you're seeing new solutions for problems. What do you think, what do you carry forward through all the different things that you've done and seen where... Like, what do you keep carrying forward through all of this stuff since 1970 and working in DC to right. trying to solve grass-fed beef aggregation on the regional level in 2023?
0: Well <laughs> that's my that's... lifetime,
1: by the way. I was born in 1970. <laughs> right. So your my lifetime is your guy. career. Right. No, your right. career of trying to fix big systemic things. Like what carry what keeps you going?
0: Well, I have I'm an eternal optimist, or I never would have kept going. <laughs> Fair. But, but I do feel like, I feel like so many people say, the carpenter sees everything as a nail. Well, I feel, I, the cattle are just this incredible solution. And having raised, I've had my her- own herds of cattle, I've leased lots of land, and I've been all over the world looking at cattle. And it's—they're an incredible solution to this whole climate insanity that we have. And I get frustrated because I see the resources being spent, like all this climate resilience stuff coming out of the sky, and there's all these NGOs that are like oh, expanding their people, but—and I still haven't figured out the key as. And we're doing a lot of work in the our not-for-profit. Oh, I did. I started another not-for-profit about a year and a half ago, <laughs> <laughs> called, called the uh, Northeast Grass Fed Beef Initiative. But and one of the things we've done is spent a lot of time on paradigm shift. You know, how do people change their paradigm? Yeah. And and what's fascinating to me about the cattle, or what could be fascinating, particularly understanding the polarization in the world and politics and everything else so like i said i've traveled all over the country and i've uh, met stayed with ranchers who have diametrically opposed political views on some things but there's common ground when we're talking about the land yeah the livestock i mean these guys are incredible conservationists they're changing their practices to support some rare trout in their stream. They're not giving government money to do it. It's just, that's where their heart is. Yeah, And they believe in the family yeah. and they believe in agriculture. And it's just, <laughs> they say the optimism that this issue could join people. For a while, I worked with the Oregon Country Beef in Oregon, the big cooperative that does grain-fed beef but mm-hmm. they sell the whole foods and one of their requirements was the branches that are part of the cooperative would have to go for two days a year and go to san francisco to a whole food store wear their cowboy hat cook steaks and hand out samples and they said it was magic because you have all these san francisco hippies foodies Hi. looking for food, and you get these cowboys we're producing it and they're talking to each other finally. And they're like, oh my god, you really are a good person. You do care about your land. You do care about oh, your family. Yeah. And the hippies going like, Yeah, I really care about food. It's really important to me. And it's just like, oh, it's just like this yeah. unifying yeah. thing. Yeah. Not to mention understanding how fast we could change. Because my experience, like when I first had my herd here in Hardwick, I leased the land trust from East Quabbin Land Trust. I I leased the farm that they had just been given. The farm had been in corn for 30 years. It was all the bad stuff in the world sprayed on it. Atrazine, everything under the sun. So I went in and I decided I better, you know, traditionally plow it up, plant something. So I did. I planted something. But then I applied the cattle. And after three years, I think it was, three or four years, I had a group from Stone Barns down in New York come to visit. And it was in July. And we were involved with the land trust in a program to optimize the bottling habitat. So we couldn't mow or cut until
1: July 15. Yep,
0: yep. So we're walking out into my farm and the grass is five, six feet tall. You can't see very well. So we went up in the birding platform that's there on the land trust so we could look down on the grass. And I looked across the stone wall to my neighbor's land. And now my neighbor, he's a retired engineer. He just makes hay. he just makes hay. puts nothing back on land, just mows it. And he hadn't been able to get on his land yet this year because it was wet that year. And this was the field was a little wet. He couldn't bring his big tractors in. But I looked over there and my grass and his grass were totally different colors. Mm-hmm. Mine was four or five feet tall. His was two feet tall. I actually took my son back, who was four feet tall at the time, from <laughs> on my side. You know, the grass is up over his head Put yeah. him on the other side. Yeah. And then but then and then I took a grazing stick to measure the height. And you know how the grazing stick has got a little grid on it. Yeah. So you count the dots and you measure the density. Well, I slid that grazing stick in on my side and I couldn't see the stick, little on the dots. I had to pull the stick out to give the evidence <laughs> that the stick was in there. So I'm going to the chart thinking, how much biomass per acre inch do I have compared to my neighbor? And we're only separated by some song-, song ball. So we have the same rainfall, we have the same sun, we have the same soil. Same
1: soil. Everything's
0: identical. Yep. Other than management. Yep. That's what makes me optimistic. Is is this can happen fast from from a really bad agronomic situation and turn it quickly? But but the key is, as Gabe Brown says, the key is the cattle. He did cover crops and then yeah. a couple of parcels he could plant the cover crops and he saw an increase and in everything once he applied the herbivores it goes vertical
1: that knocked me out and i fe- always felt like in his uh, ted talk i love his ted talk and it's wonderful tedx and but when he shows the slides of his soil organic matter increasing and then there's this huge jump he's just Oh, yeah, and that's the year we had the cattle. I'm like, no, oh, no, that's the story. That's the story right there. Exactly. It's, it's like, it's yeah, I mean, it was a curve, and then it was like a breakthrough jump. Right. I can't remember. Yeah. It was not twice the organic matter, but it was close to twice the oh, yeah. organic matter. It was probably an 80% increase in that period of time, and it was after the added the cattle. And I'm like,
0: that is the story right there. It is, but, see, yeah. you know, the, the problem is, inertia and par- paradigm shift oh. so I first moved to this town oh. there were I think 13 dairy farms and they all had cattle obviously they're dairy farms and they all had manure and they had to get rid of it so you go spread yeah. it maybe not the right time of the year maybe in the snow who knows but it went back on the land today there's zero dairy farms in this town all the land is still being farmed but it's being farmed to make hay. So it's like an extractive business where they're all saying, like, we're making hay, but you're making hay on that. You're mining that organic matter. The hay goes to some horse down in Boston. The manure goes in a dumpster. Believe me, I built built barns where you have to have a pad for the dumpster because the manure's got to go in a dumpster. Oh, wow. wow. So it's like this extractive and yet everybody's like, oh, the poor farmers <laughs> Help the farmers. I mean, yeah. I was at a meeting with a bunch of the farmers in town. And it was mid-August. And they were all crying because, oh, I haven't done my, I haven't finished my first cutting yet. It's been so wet. I let them piss them on for a while. And I said, you know what you guys need? Cattle. <laughs> oh, no, we can't do that. We got our big machines. And one of them even said to me, this is insane. He said, if I can't get my first cutting off, should I go in there with a bush hog and bush hog it off and then haul all that waste into the woods? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I'm like,
1: oh, oh my gosh.
0: Oh my God. Oh but my anyway, gosh. so so the the ingredients are all here. The yeah. land is here. We know the right kind of cattle. The markets now are screaming for the product.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But how do you go from this to that? And there's that whole farm-to-table. The farmer should put the piece of meat in the person's hand, and I love that. To a, and, but it only works to a little point. Yeah. There's only so much that one farm can hand the steaks to so many people, and manage the marketing, manage the inventory, manage the freezer, manage the raise the animals, get them harvested, all that stuff. And there's a few people who've been very successful. The seven sons, because there's seven sons. They've been very successful. But, right. But the model of that is challenging, and partly because of the processing. The way the processing works, and there's a whole chapter in the book about it, but the way the processing works is almost all farmers are the packer. So in other words, as big picture beef, we take the cattle in, we get it harvested, we get all the parts. We got a market for some of it. We got the steaks place. We got the market for the ground beef, but we don't quite have the brisket sold or something else. And eventually that stuff goes to the freezer, immediately loses value, eventually it gets discounted out. But but managing the complexity of the animal and marketing all the parts in the
1: inventory. Is, yeah.
0: Is a real challenge. And that's and we're now a whole bunch of money is going to these small slaughterhouses to try it make them more efficient and bigger and whatever. But the proposition of the producer being a packer is the challenge. So the in the new model, I imagine, we go to somebody who is a packer, we sell them the live ant, and then we go to the back door and buy back the parts that we have a market for mm-hmm. at a reasonable price. And they become the pack because they can sell all the pancreas glands they can sell all the hearts. They can sell all those parts that most of us just can't. We're just incapable. The markets are there, but you know you can't take five oxtails and afford to ship them someplace. You can't put them on a truck. Just it's not <laughs> the economics are not there. Yeah. yeah, and and therefore my feeling is that that a lot of this infrastructure exists, and so my, many of us want to start rebuild the infrastructure start a food hub, buy a truck, on and on, but the infrastructure is doing this all the time, every day. And the question becomes more, how do you get this incredibly superior product into the marketplace at a scale where it, and again, the scale is what allows us to get competitive pricing. If you go to Cargill, your costs are $250 an animal. If you go to plant around here, it's $750 an animal. That's yes. a big difference. That's a huge animal. difference. It really is. Per, per animal. And then it's not all that. I mean, God love them, all these plants, but the skill set just isn't there. I mean, we went through that with the big picture beef. We got to the point where we were supplying Cornell. Cornell wanted two ounce patties. Because they put two patties and two rolls on a plate, and their meat cost is negligible compared to a three-pound mm-hmm. burger. But the plant we're dealing with up in Vermont couldn't produce the two-ounce patties. Yeah. So we are now taking a combo, two thousand pounds of meat, and shipping it to Hunts Point in New York to go through a plant that can produce the two-ounce patties. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just it's an insane. But this is a plant that does three hundred thousand pounds a day. And yeah, they, so
1: it's not a big deal for them.
0: Well, it is a big deal. They never, they didn't want to do it at all.
1: Well, it's too small. I remember being right. in a dairy business in the 90s and in an organic dairy, and to get, we had to save up our cream to get it processed to meet the minimum amount to be able to exactly. have this external plant be able to process our cream into butter for one pound blocks of butter because we couldn't even begin to offer enough cream to do a stick like yeah like we couldn't meet their minimum for that but we could meet the minimum for their very old plant
0: (laughs) well exactly and the chat but so i i am continue to be very optimistic because the land is here the knowledge is here and but you know uh, and one of the big changes i think is going to happen is the movement from dairy to grass-fed beef because mm. dairy i've got a producer out in new york who's third generation the farm has been owned for three generations dairy farm and a year and a half ago uh he called me he said we're getting out of dairy and i said oh really what's why is that he says, oh just can't afford it they have all their capital already in hand and uh I said, yeah, so the price, huh? And he said, yeah. So so when I milked cows 50 years ago, we were getting $14 a hundredweight. He was getting sixteen dollars a hundredweight. Fifty years later. And yeah, we wonder why this system doesn't work. Yeah, but the beauty that's, of that's a mess. Yeah, and part of it is that the in dairy, the cattle are selected to to for volume, volume of blue milk and not components and selected to be parked and food brought to them. And they can take that same dairy farm, go down in their bottoms and plant a cover crop, put a wire around it, and they can graze and start making money immediately. Yeah. The park is there. And and they have they have that scale, which is critical. But it's such I just keep seeing there's such an unfair advantage here in the Northeast. I spent an evening with Bill Nyman in New York City back a few years now. The guy who who created Cook's Venture was cooking chickens for us. <laughs> and we we met there and we of course we started talking about cattle. And after about four hours, he looked at me and he said, Ridge, he said, for a Yankee, you know an awful lot about cattle. And I said, <laughs> I'll take that as a compliment.
1: I'll take that as a compliment. He
0: said, But Rich, he said, you cannot raise cattle out here with all your trees, stone walls. And I said, wait, Bill, how many acres does it take you to support a bovine in your environment, California, Marin, or wherever he lives? Yeah. Oh, 15 or 20 acres. Yeah. It takes me one or two because I have this insane thing called rain. I mean, in a drought, we get 35 inches. And he said, yeah, I guess. And I said, so here's the kicker, Bill. Where's the markets? He goes, "Yep, yeah, you got me. So we're sitting in the markets of the world. We have high-quality soil. Dairy is the highest quality. So we have all this high-quality soil. Yeah, we have farmers who are committing suicide right. because of the dire situation both dairy and uh, crop farmers. And the only reason they're growing corn is because of that subsidy. And they're all looking for a way out. They're not bad people at all. They're just... They're, <laughs> the farmers are really smart. But how do we get this shift the paradigm from those big corn farms to this is a crazy thing to do to this land, spray it with poison and kill it. We could be getting life into it, but it's a tough sell, but so it that, is.
1: That was a question. That's a question that I, I know that you think about a lot. And I think about a lot, and I'm curious what your thoughts are. How do we get more folks to adopt this, to adopt a new paradigm? Like, we know that the soil's here. We know that the open land is here. We know that there is open land in the Northeast, just despite despite perceptions. Um, right. And we know that the markets are here and the demand is here specifically for grass-fed beef. Like, and it's been growing and growing. How do we bring the farmers on board with this? Like, how do we get them? Where is the value for them? in changing up what they do and how they do it.
0: Yeah, I think part of it's gonna be price. And interestingly, the commercial price right now for some of these big companies is a premium over the five day weighted average, it's significant. They're paying in 340 a pound, hot carcass weight, which is a good price, but you still have to, still have to capitalize the feeder calves coming in from somewhere so that so there's banking i mean there's all kinds of and then you have the logistics of going to big enough plants so you get efficiency there yeah and but yeah no it's a real conundrum because i go into a like i went into the supermarket chain around here They've got a whole alternative meat case. And you go in and I took a picture of it and there's like five options of grass-fed beef, but they all come from Australia or York. Area. There's not a single American option in there. There's Dakota Organic. Where's that come from? Australia. It's Verde Farms. It comes from Uruguay. There's all these options. And there's so many pieces of that i mean the policy is one there's no country of origin labeling there's right. no you
1: yeah know, folks people don't realize yeah
0: that product the usa on it because it was ground up in the u.s so i don't know i do not know i think it's the opportunity is is huge but i've been pushing that rock for a while i mean i mm-hmm. part of me thinks the subsidy abe would argue with that completely but when you look at when you look at some of the things that have Taken off electric vehicles, they would not exist without a government subsidy. Solar yeah, yeah. It just would not have happened. Corn would not happen without a subsidy.
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, so you can't take those subsidies away, but you could add one that says this grass-fed beef animal gets an additional three hundred fifty dollars. And believe me, the investors would show up. The people, the wealthy people that own these big farms. And they don't want to jump in and and they're a bit risk adverse. They don't want to stock their farmers. They don't have a sure bet market. If you say an extra $350, all of a sudden that begins to pencil. And you'd say, oh, my God. But the thing is, if you could reward that grass-fed beef that was raised correctly, that's the conundrum. No, Not that it was just 100% grass, but it was grazed. In an adaptive multi paddock situation, so that it is yeah. bringing down carbon and fixing the water cycle. I mean, that's part of the problem with the Australian beef. It's grass fed, but it's it's the worst possible range conditions. They're right. not building soil. They're not doing adaptive multi paddock grazing. They simply aren't using grain. And then they they got Brahma yeah. cattle, which is tough as nails, and they grind it up. Nobody knows. And it's here in our marketplace. <laughs>
1: Yeah, it's a very different it's a very different product and a very different grazing management, as I've understood it as well.
0: Yeah. Right. So yeah. how do you reward the grazing is is there's always the conundrum. And- so
1: I have been I have been chatting with some folks about this topic lately, partly because of a research project that I'm I participate in as a farmer and I was just meeting with that project team. And recently, the end of the year recap kind of a thing. And it's interesting because we were getting into a conversation around payment for ecosystem services and which this project <clears throat> is trying to model a little bit of that, but the idea of decoupling being paid for land management from being paid for a product. So I absolutely understand in agriculture, there are a lot of folks who are very uncomfortable with a government payment. And I completely understand
0: right.
1: Want, right. wanting to have a healthy business separate from federal intervention. I, I completely understand that and completely respect that. But the piece that I think is the public good piece is when we're good land managers, the public benefits, and oh, sure. and so it de- kind of doesn't matter what animal is on it. It could be sheep. It could be cattle, beef cattle. It could be dairy cattle. It could be goats. It could be you know a ruminant animal of some kind. And but how you manage those, that's what isn't getting paid for. Right. <laughs> so right. you get paid for the product and the product and that's great, but the land itself is. The thing that somebody who's a really good grazer is managing land well that creates this great place for animals to get fat and feed people and it's like that's the the trick that is right That, that <laughs> i think we have to figure out a way to solve decoupling land management stewardship payment from product payment if that makes yeah. any sense
0: Yeah, no, I I hear what you're saying. I think the thing is that it it needs something to bump it over the edge because at the end of the day, this methodology of grazing, I mean, increased biomass three to six times. Yeah. I mean, there's your rent per acre is like negligible. Yeah. And that's what's going to happen once you get it going. And, and those costs, I mean, it's just like solar. There was all these incentives. Now they're pulling them back, but the infrastructure has been built. There's reasonably priced panels. The engineering is done. They know how to put them on the land. They know how There's to- There's tons of know.
1: companies around. You can get the work done right away. Like exactly. the financial entities are now in line with all of this too. So it's easy to get financing on a right.
0: solar right. system. So it, but it needs something. And then the thing is, it does need- the uh, some kind of bigger system. One of the things I did in the NELA days, doing a life cycle analysis, I took some of my money and I went to France to study a group called the Alliance Pastoral. And they were, it's it's, a, it's not a cooperative, it's not vertically integrated, it's a syndicate of groups that work together. Mm-hmm. So there's this. There's a slaughterhouse called the Sodam that slaughters 500,000 sheep a year. Those sheep are bred to 200 rams, all 500,000 of them. So they get 200 rams, in the ram, they elven the cement, and the inseminators, they're all artificially inseminated. Seminators go get the semen from 10 rams. They mix it all together because it's just oh, a criminal fire. Yeah, you know, all the rams are progeny proven, but when you're going to go commercially breed, you just you don't care. It's just a terminal sire. Yeah. So when you go to the slaughterhouse and you see these truckloads of lambs or sheep coming in, some have a black head, some have a brown head, whatever. You get them across the kill table, strip the hide, and hang them up, and they're just like cookie cutter. hmm It's incredible consistency because of the genetic density of the males. Plus, you're, you're, they all are experiencing hybrid vigor because you get this commercial herd and you get this pre ram coming in on them. I mean, it's just amazing. And you know, then there's a farmer's organization that sells all the farm supplies, but at only a 50% markup instead of 100% markup. And they have a marketing department. They have, they have, they have a 24-hour vet hotline. they have a lab where they do fecal analysis on the sheep and they I mean it's just an incredible thing and it is um, but it's based on rewarding the farmers for the product
1: Yeah.
0: so if the product meets the criteria not you're just a good guy not you just do good practices but your product is consistent quality so they sell to the La Belle Rouge the top brand in France because they have this incredible consistency and that's what the market wants consistent high quality they want eatability they want the same size all that kind of thing and a lot of people say oh but you know terroir and everyone should be different And there it's like you know, what the market wants is consistent high quality but, but there I think are that
1: there's both i mean i think that i think that pe- there's a huge group of people who want to know when they go and buy something that it's a predictable something. And then there is a small subset of those folks who like something that's a little, those are the wine drinkers. Those are the terroir people. But that's not that I don't, I don't think that the terroir people are the ones who are necessarily going to make the major cultural and production shift. Like they have, they've been, they're the early adopters, right? they're right, the people right. that like pull along that little bell curve and they're like we're the weirdos we like we like steaks that taste different every single time i am one of those people i totally get that but that is not what the vast majority like you don't change the bell curve until you get the big right. majority in the middle of that bell and right. they're the consistency people they want to know
0: what well the and it's a consistent yeah it's well it's the consistent high quality i yeah. mean that's a, yeah I sent a steak to Dan Barber, and he he's been embracing his farm to table thing for years, and grass fed beef, and and it totally blew his mind. He said, "How did you do this?" And I said, "Well, you just harvest the energy in the grass." But it was the eating experience was superior.
1: Yeah,
0: and yet <clears throat> he'd been embracing, and and he said, "At best, it's intermittent grass fed beef. Some's good, some's not so good." But yeah. The the goal will be the consistent high quality. And then yeah, that could there could be a long discussion about it could be a
1: long discussion. You have an amazing story. You just you have an amazing story. And you really have woven through like trying to address the world's problems throughout your whole life and this big scale stuff.
0: Right. It takes a right. pretty
1: visionary person to be doing that.
0: And yeah. 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 So well, yeah. Yeah, no, it's good. No, I, and I remain optimistic in spite of whatever. <laughs> I mean, I, it's so possible that we have all the tools, we have all the ingredients. And of course, as long as you remember that the uh, the cattle are the key, the cattle mm-hmm. are course. You know, I say yeah. the, the, cow, the cow is the thing. Yeah. I know you like sheep, but that, I say cow. <laughs> no, I, I... They just go so much faster. <laughs> and the, the big thing with sheep. Sheep are much more efficient, I hate to admit it, but you get 150% lambing on and on. But they
1: are that way. Market, and, yeah, and it's faster. Now,
0: there's, there's not a big market for lamb.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: there's like this, it's the centerpiece of the American diet. You know? Yeah. So but and if it goes to scale, then you'll get companies. I mean, you will get companies like McDonald's that will buy this meat. I mean, that's why I tell people that's my my would be my favorite customers, McDonald's, because everybody talks about food desert and who's in every food desert in the country. McDonald's. Putting protein in people's mm-hmm. hands. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a delivery Absolutely. system. You know, it could be yeah. delivered right, right thing. And if we could, if we take those three states, we would have so much grass-fed beef that the slaughter would appear, the price would be and and the efficiency of the production methodology would mean that the price would be lower yeah. and be it be able to move it into those kinds of things i'm sorry it put the corn farmers out of business but hey and I, john and I, john man santo all, <laughs> all those guys would be really angry because is that a sign of success any of <laughs>
1: anyway oh my gosh thank you rich this is amazing this is a great just Fair a wonderful day. conversation and very timely to share your story as we get ready for the conference this January. And uh, oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And we're going to talk about meat and flavor and all kinds of, yeah, it's a and feeding New England. So, right. yeah, right. trying to be New England, feeding New England. Yeah, great, right. perfect. Okay, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, Have a great sure day. Thing. Thank you. Wow, I'm still blown away by the fact that the length of Ridge's career is basically how old I am. <laughs> Whew! So I'm actually more inspired by that than anything. I don't feel that old. It just it makes me go back to think about him visiting the arboretum and um, Polly Hill, the woman who started it at the age of 50. Now she's 96 and she's tooling around enjoying her creation. I just think that there's something really profound about having a vision. And just not quitting as the road to get there weaves back and forth. And it just, it gives me hope more than anything else. Um, so some of the topics raised today that I just wanted to highlight. Um, Ridge starting so many organizations, just he sees a need. He always has. He sees a need and he just gets going getting something started he didn't have to stay with it he and over time he talks about letting some things go in order to do the next thing that was more important on the path toward his vision of what needed to be done out there in the world and as we look toward big dreams and visions we do need to let some things go it's just the truth of it we can't carry around all the old stuff with us as we grow and evolve we have to shed that skin even if sometimes we don't want to shed that skin. So it just prompts me to think about people who are entrepreneurial thinkers and those who are more managers, who are really good at running things. It can take a really different sort of mindset and skill set to do one of those, start things versus the other, run things. And I think Ridge might actually be someone with a skill set to do both of those, but clearly he's passionate about seeing a need and getting things started, and then being happy handing it off to someone else more interested in running that thing day to day. I think that that's that's a good lesson for me. So another uh, topic that came up was just the concept of making really big change and how that requires thinking big. It it requires thinking regionally and big picture, (laughs) if if you'll excuse the big picture beef reference. But it's true, big picture, we have to think big. And the ability to change the lives of many people on individual farms by changing demand or changing access or changing genetics at the larger scale, many of us, we think about we might change on our individual places, but often we'll make those changes based on external conditions like regulations or taxes or because good genetics are not available locally. To be most effective across all of our farms means to change something at a large level that affects us so that we have to adjust to meet it. And I have to say, after a whole career of working with lots of individual farms, I finally see the value of thinking bigger myself. It's actually what led to this podcast is to share stories with more people across the whole country if possible. So, and then the third thing was I love that he brought up grazing as a way to unify people with very different perspectives and lives. You know, the rancher and the hippie, they're not enemies. They're just portrayed that way in the media and for political fodder and to keep people separated. And I think in order to really create paradigm shift, we have to find more ways to get more conversations going between unlikely people. You know, while not all farming systems have the same impacts on water quality, Rich talked about that with infiltration. I would argue there isn't a farmer or a rancher anywhere that wants to cause a problem with clean water. In order to change our paradigms about other people, we need to meet them. We need to humanize them. We need to listen to them. And we need to be willing to grow when we hear different stories than our own. And that's not always easy. So, what parts of this conversation resonated with you other than my squeaky voice from having laryngitis this week while I recorded this? <laughs> So, what parts of this conversation resonated with you? Reach out with your comments or questions at choosingtofarm.com. You can check the show notes for links to Ridge's contact information and his book, a link to buy his book, as well as a few links to the different organizations that he mentions in this episode, and there are a lot. As always, if you'd like to support the show, please share it with a friend. Consider supporting our Patreon or leave a public review. They really help and they're free. And I appreciate every single one of them. Thank you so very much. As I mentioned at the top of the show, the Gathering of Good Razors is coming to Western Massachusetts very soon. I hope you check out the registration and info links in the show notes. It is a hybrid conference. So even if you can't get there in person, you could attend online. It's also gonna be recorded for later. So we're very excited. I've been on the planning team for this. I'm very excited. And I hope, we hope that you'll join us. It's such an honor to be able to share your stories out into the world. Farmer to Farmer is how we learn and how we build a community. And that is what I hope we are doing together one episode at a time. Thanks, everyone. I will see you next time. I'm going to go rest my voice while my husband, Chris Sargent, plays us out. Have a great day.